Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 162, Kolkos, part 2. Last week I covered many of the big-picture events of the Soviet Union's collectivization campaign up to around 1932. Today I want to take a little break and cover how all these cataclysmic changes actually impacted the lives of the peasants who lived through them, and what ground-level events looked like at the time. Going back to one of the original points of why collectivization was important in the first place, the first few years of the 1930s were striking in how labor was freed up and transferred into the cities in the USSR. After all, with the Kolkos having ready access to the machine and tractor stations, or the MTSs, that offered mechanized equipment, there simply wasn't as much a demand for human labor in the countryside as there was before once farms started getting consolidated. And then there were the peasants who didn't see much of a future for themselves in the countryside in general, and elected to make the move to the cities on their own volition. As the peasants began leaving their privately owned farms, a quarter of them who committed to abandoning their old ways of life actually opted to stop being peasants entirely and join the urban proletariat. A million and a half peasants entered the cities in 1930, with four million more in 1931. Overall, in just Four years from 1928 to 1932, around 12 million people became urbanized. All of the big cities in the USSR saw rapid population growth. A half dozen of those biggest cities saw their populations double or even triple. Moscow alone went from a population of 2 million to 3.7 million, with Leningrad not far behind that rate. The number of peasant households, not total population but entire families, dropped from 26 million to 19 million. I'll be covering the dislocation caused by rapid urbanization when I switch over to talking about the cities, but suffice to say this population exchange was completely outside the power of the state to properly manage, which isn't to say that it was unwelcome, per se. The communist line was that the countryside was vastly overpopulated in the absence of mechanization, to the tune of some 10 million people at least. The population transfer was a natural effect of mechanizing agriculture and creating a slew of new factory jobs. Well, that and also forcibly removing many peasants deemed class enemies from their farms and convincing others that sticking around wasn't worth it anymore. But regardless of why people were leaving, they left behind a badly shrunken population base. The transfer of people out of the countryside had profound implications to those left behind. The people moving into the cities were mostly men and mostly young. Much of the future generation of the peasantry raised stakes and ditched out. Husbands left behind wives and families in search of work elsewhere. Suddenly, older peasants, or those from separated families, lost a great deal of certainty that they might have otherwise had. Life itself was drained from the villages. For the advancement of collectivization, this was both good and bad. It was good because those who might have organized resistance against the Kolkhoz were decamping, leaving behind the older peasants who had much less of a fight in them, and who were also being left totally bewildered by the frightening changes happening around them. A dislocated population was one less likely to present viable resistance, after all. It was bad, though, in that even as the most threatening peasants were leaving, so were the most promising. The communists counted among their most ardent supporters the more youthful peasants who desired a more egalitarian future. The thing was, the communist peasants were also those most eager to become modern, and that meant picking up technical skills and working in the fancy new factories. 
those youth supportive of the cult cause who stuck around also gravitated more towards getting work in the MTSs, which, again, was a technical job involving modern equipment. But it also kept them apart, even though they stayed on the farms. Those peasants left behind to actually work the land were oftentimes apathetic towards the success or failure of collectivization. They recognized that the state was pulling the strings, so they couldn't immediately benefit, so why put in anything extra? The feeling of apathy was probably not helped by the haphazard collectivization drive that occurred during the winter of 1929 to 1930. That was the one I talked about last week, where 60% of the peasants were declared to be collectivized. It was an important moment, because after that frenzied campaign was called off, authorities took steps to continue collectivization on a much more controlled timeline, and the approach became far more organized. But in that winter, orders came down from Moscow for total collectivization without accompanying orders on how to actually do that. In fact, the Politburo would only approve official guidance on what a proper Kokos would look like on March 1, 1930, the same day Stalin published his Dizzy with Success article that announced the temporary retreat away from the Kokos. During that winter, lacking specific orders, local officials engaged in a crazed competition to outdo one another in how many peasants they can get to sign onto the Kokos which has led some historians to suspect that the ambiguity was the intent from all along. If officials didn't know what their targets were and saw their overachieving counterparts leaving them in the dust, they would themselves do everything in their power to produce results. No plan or target meant that the sky was the limit. This is kind of where the gross irresponsibility of the Soviet state comes in. Not that it was intentionally nefarious, but that it was content to let things play out and see how much they could get away with. Regional party bosses admonished their localized subordinates to not complain about this state of affairs, lest they be branded as insufficiently zealous, or worse, outright counter-revolutionary. Communists in the countryside were allowed to act as they thought proper, with the knowledge that they would be judged later on in how they did. And local bosses did not disappoint. In addition to the millions of peasants signed onto the Kolkos, so too were vast tracts of land and huge numbers of livestock brought onto the collective farms. The fragmented patchwork of private holdings that defined the countryside were swept away, at least on paper for that first winter. And yes, that transfer of livestock led directly to the Union's herds being culled by the peasants, so whatever triumph the bosses might have initially felt on that score rapidly soured. Peasants were even denied their private plots in many cases, as officials sought to present the most collectivized picture possible when reporting to their own bosses. The mantra was to collectivize everything except people's houses. Now, this was toned down later and people's private plots were quickly returned, but these cases do show the, the zealotry that officials had during that first winter. Meanwhile, actually convincing the peasants took more than a little doing, as while many in the party were uninterested in the arguments against collectivization, they did want to preserve an appearance of consent. Communists would go into the peasant villages and in town meetings would press their cases on why they should all collectivize. The communists would appeal to the reason of the peasants in some cases, arguing why modernizing their operations and becoming more in step with the rest of the nation would be to their advantage, and in other instances, veiled threats were made if they refused to comply. In all instances, the party line was pushed, and the farmers were begged to change their way of life in order to build the better tomorrow that the party aspired to. By and large, the peasants didn't really go for it. 
The pitch meetings were disrupted by old women defiantly singing religious songs. Hooligans would disrupt the proceedings. Chimneys and stoves in the town would be made to billow out black smoke to create a fire alarm. And then there was the fun tactic of agreeing to the presented arguments. Then when the time came to actually commit to the Kolkos, say that the village had changed its mind. The rejections took on a mocking tone, and some villages mimicked the party's lingo when issuing its statements against collectivization. Uh, this is where the threats really started coming into play, as the state officials were not amused. They started throwing around the word kulak, which was shorthand for, you're going to get deported if you go on like this. One official went to the village and said, those who are for the Kolkos, sign up with me. Everyone else, report to the local chief of police. Whereupon, a dozen peasants who dared to defy him were arrested on the spot. Given that this was the dawn of the Stalinist era, authorities were not messing around. Some of the Kolkos organizers brought guns with them and threatened to shoot on the spot any who refused to sign up. In other instances, peasants were summoned out of the village to the Rural Soviet, which acted as the regional council of government, whereupon they'd be detained and told in no uncertain terms that their release depended on joining the Kolkos. One harsh example I came across was peasants being put into cold storage, meaning that they were left in a barn over a cold winter night to give the proposal some additional thought. Among the most enthusiastic collectivizers were members of the Komsomol, the Young Communists. Keep in mind, this wasn't the communist equivalent to the Boy Scouts, that was the Young Pioneers and the Little Octoberists. The Komsomol was composed of people aged 14 to 28, so it was much more a group about building communist adults. Komsomol members would act as additional muscle for the officials to intimidate the peasants. The peasants, who were divided thanks to the start of the population shifting to the cities, the deportation of wealthy kulaks out of the villages, the support found for the Kolkos among many of the poor peasants, and, you know, just vastly increased state power, by and large caved to the demands made of them. Keep in mind that while the state would retreat in the spring of 1930, it would pick right back up again at the end of the year, so the trajectory of peasants moving on to the Kolkos was fairly constant. Although even once part of the Kolkos, the peasants still displayed resistance, which is something I'll talk about in depth more next week, but once peasants joined up, they oftentimes found that they were at the mercies of the Kolkos administrators, and they weren't too happy about the fact. One peasant described how he had gone out to pick up some kerosene and returned to discover that his cow had been collectivized while he was out. Officials would break into the barns and claim both animals and grain stored inside. Very quickly, the entire economic foothold that the peasants had built up was transferred to state control. I mentioned the Kulaks a moment ago, and I should probably discuss them now. Uh, for many peasants, losing their stored grain or facing the choice of relinquishing their livestock versus slaughtering them was an excruciating prospect. They did not relish the change from managing their own land to both work the fields and handle animals as part of a group under the watchful eye of the state. But they remained peasants and stayed in their homes, working at least in a familiar place. The fate of the Kulaks was considerably different. Stalin announced in December 1929 that the Kulaks would be liquidated as a class entirely, one of the first fronts in that era's cultural revolution that was the dramatic break away from the NEP and Bukharin's exhortation earlier in the decade for the peasants to enrich themselves. In January 1930, Molotov ordered 60,000 individual Kulaks to be sent to the expanding gulags and forced labor units, 
while 150,000 entire families would be uprooted and packed off east of the Urals to fill out labor requirements in those areas. Their property was to be seized in its entirety, not just land and animals, but homes, equipment, and accumulated possessions as well. Once again, the Komsomol proved to be energetic partners to state officials, as they would help seize property on their behalf. The Kulaks would be forced to start over and work off their class transgressions in order to rejoin a comradely society. To achieve the task of arrest and removal, the OGPU was fully mobilized, and even old hands, long since retired, were called back to help do the work. It was estimated that 3-5% to 5 of the peasant population would ultimately be treated in this manner, but in some regions, they went above and beyond, and as many as 15% of the peasants were deported. Naturally, this was a golden opportunity for people to settle grudges, and those able to add names to the lists of those to be de denounced as kulaks and deported added their local enemies to that list. A handful were able to appeal being branded a kulak, as oftentimes peasants would try and get rid of the communists in their midst by accusing them of, well, being class enemies. For well-known communists, such tactics usually didn't work, as they could fall back on their reputations as a defense. Uh, less fortunate or less well-connected non-peasants like teachers, clerks, and even some industrial workers were targeted and deported anyway, their livelihoods completely ruined by the confiscations and the taint of being branded a kulak. Because being confirmed a kulak was every bit like being branded a severe criminal. You first had to serve whatever labor sentence you were given, and this was not just some factory job or farm work somewhere else. You either labored in the gulag camps or in labor brigades, and as you may already be familiar, conditions were not very good. Labor itself was difficult, food was scarce, and you were largely left exposed to the elements. That isn't to say you were marked out for death per se, but your survival was not a goal either. Not all kulaks were subjected to the full experience, and those who were removed with their households were oftentimes sent to start uh, new lives elsewhere, and which, if you were put into the real deal forced labor system, was something that you could um, look forward to after your stint was done. I say look forward to very hesitantly, as rebuilding a life after being branded a kulak was not an easy task. Returning to the farming way of life was not a guarantee, as, well, first of all, the Kokos were actually banned from accepting kulaks until later into the 30s, and even then, it was oftentimes a conditional thing. And many times, the Kokos did not want to take on a kulak, both because they likely weren't bringing much with them of value to add to the collectivized farm, and because having a kulak in their midst might have invited trouble. The wage-paying Sovkos was a more viable option, but even then, they'd face discrimination. That left moving to the cities, which wasn't great either. Kulaks were discriminated against in terms of getting a ration card and were barred from the nice factory jobs. And again, they were class enemies, so people either didn't trust them or found them to be a liability. State authorities had a hell of a time trying to process this sudden movement of people, both from a practical and legal perspective. At first, the Kulaks were divided into three types based on how grave their offenses were, meaning how enterprising they had been. However, those distinctions rapidly fell away on account of convenience and the confusion between the degrees of Kulak. At first, some of the small-time offenders were allowed to take what possessions they could with them when they were evicted, and sometimes weren't even required to move beyond their home locality. But local officials complained about these Kulaks lingering around, looking for new places to stay, and in practice, the vast majority of them were sent far from their homes. Sometimes, friends would get word to various families that they were under threat of being deported, giving them time to gather their belongings and making a break for it. 
The Soviet Union was vast, and state surveillance was still terribly imperfect. So, if you could get the money together, it was viable for you to flee to some other part of the country before a formal accusation against you could be made. God only knew when the overstretched security apparatus could catch up with you. Then there was the matter of prosecuting the kulaks through the courts. Yes, the appearance of legalities here is pretty laughable, but the Soviet legal system was forced into its own extreme simply processing the deluge of people that needed to be accused, given a perfunctory prosecution, and then sentenced and recorded. While eventually the courts managed to piece together some consistency in how they handled these cases, for a long while at the start they were really making it up as they went along. I'll also spare a word about the village priests. In the grand scheme of things, the Orthodox Church was not a huge factor in these events, but its steady degradation did mark an important change in the lives of the peasants. In the cities, the church had been badly ground down already, its flock dwindling in the face of an industrialized, scientific future. In the countryside, though, the church was still going strong, albeit not really as a political factor. That its ability to affect the course of national events had been extinguished was not enough for the communists, though and they did not need the church sticking around to act as a focal point for peasant resistance. Uh, too bad that their own heavy-handedness turned the church into exactly that. A big anti-religion push got going in January 1930, alongside the big collectivization drive. What was notable was that it wasn't part of the orders coming out of Moscow. It was something that local party members undertook on their own initiative. That being said, nobody at the top lifted a finger once the dismantlement of the rural churches were underway. Alongside collectivization, the local churches were ordered closed and their priests deported along with the kulaks. I'm kind of zeroing in on the Orthodox Church here, but keep in mind that this experience was shared with other Christian denominations, Jews, and Muslims. The League of the Militant Godless, the party's anti-religious organization whom I mentioned back in episode 99, were at first thrilled about all this news. The largest bastions of foul religion were finally being rooted out. Then they realized it was happening spontaneously and started getting cold feet. Not only were they not going to get the credit, the anti-religion efforts quickly spiraled into counterproductive violence. Once again, the Komsomol were at the forefront of this effort, and there were instances of their members attacking priests and their families in their homes. Komsomol members would publicly gather icons, church bells, artwork, what have you, and destroy it for the public to witness. It was worrying to the League because while they wanted religion gone, they didn't want a peasant rebellion, and they feared this many slaps in the face would cause one to break out. People could only have their customs be trampled over so much, after all. And for a while, it was a genuine problem. As a sign of resistance, peasants would defiantly flaunt their faith, stage religious processions in front of officials arguing for collectivization, and stage protests where religious music was central. When churches were closed, peasants would light candles in their windows at night and dare the communists to come put them out. Stalin in March 1930 would comment negatively by pointing out that while the anti-religious campaign was good, it was not the primary focus, and chided overzealous communists for playing into the hands of the counter-revolutionaries by inciting such discontentment. The campaign also caused the Pope over in Rome to make a statement to cease the religious persecutions. It didn't do anything to change the state line, of course, but it did lead to wildfire rumors among the peasantry, especially in the western borderland regions where there were some Catholics to be found. Word got around that the Pope was coming to save the peasants, a kind of new crusade to stop the communists. 
By the start of 1931, peasants as far east as the Urals were talking about how the Pope was going to save even the Orthodox believers and shut down the Kolkhoz. In other places, it was presumed that outside Christian nations like America would intervene on their behalf. All this was a fantasy, but did show where the thoughts and hopes of the peasants gravitated towards. But okay, we should finally get to the point where people started getting settled onto the Kolkhoz. Uh, these peasants were down some people to be sure, but beyond the demographic changes, how did the villages change under the new system? The obvious first step was organizing the gigantic plot of land that comprised the former private holdings of the peasants joining up. Then the communal land that had been shared by everyone had to be divided between the Kolkhoz and the holdouts who had stayed independent. This was handled by the rural Soviet on an ad hoc basis and was left to the good judgment of that body. Even without taking a cynical read of the situation into account, it wasn't an easy task. Peasants, especially in that first year after Stalin ordered a temporary retreat, were often coming and going onto the Kolkhoz, which created headaches on how to adjust communal land to account for peasants who opted to leave the collective farm. The chaos caused by that retreat was considerable. There wasn't a mechanism for peasants to get their commandeered grain back. Uh, the livestock problem was even worse, as peasants needed horses to actually gather their harvest and work the land, and yeah, good luck trying to get their horse back. Then there was getting the land they had pledged back. The communes of the villages had in most cases been dissolved in the wake of that first big collectivization push, which left two authorities in the countryside, the rural Soviet and the Kolkhoz administrators, neither of which were terribly interested in helping peasants who were leaving. Instead of getting back their old land, these peasants were assigned new plots, usually on much worse land, and were oftentimes denied access to water resources and pasture for what livestock they could get, they could get their hands on. Despite the retreat from collectivization, there were enough permanent changes that going back to how things were proved to be impossible after less than six months' worth of time. For peasants who stayed off the Kolkhoz in the first place, they were increasingly isolated and forced to turn over more and more of their output in the form of taxes and special fees for staying private farmers. For peasants who left the Kolkhoz in early 1930, they faced those same problems with the added burden of having their material conditions crippled upon going private again. In the short term, Stalin's order was a retreat, but in the long term, private farming was simply no longer viable in the USSR, which meant over time, those peasants would, one way or the other, wind up on the Kolkhoz. Initially, the Kolkhoz were gathered together into as big a unit as they possibly could. Part of this was practical, part ideological. In the eyes of the communists, they wanted something grander and more modern than village farms, so the bigger a Kokos was, the closer it would be to an industrialized operation. It would degrade the personal relationship the peasant had with the land if they were constantly working in different places on different assignments. Then there was the consideration of how to actually administer the collective farms. The management of the Kolkhoz was headed by a chairman, but he was backed by a board, and all these guys were farmers, who assisted with management. Ostensibly, the board members were elected, and in smaller Kolkhoz, there was a tendency to elect those who had held village leadership in the past, which was worrying because that meant they might act too independently. A bigger Kolkhoz was seen as a way to diffuse some of that village energy by making the overall community much larger. Unfortunately for the communists, this proved to be clumsy to manage, and the benefits of a more attentive, focused leadership was adopted after the disastrous famines of 1932-33. Hard lesson to learn, but the management of the Kolkhoz would eventually settle to around the village level. 
There would always be bigger ones, but the areas covered by the old communes kind of became the standard. Joining a Kokos was fairly straightforward. Anyone wishing to add their labor was perfectly welcome. Or at least it was on paper. While there was no basis to refuse anyone aside from kulaks and ex-priests, it did happen. This was especially true during the famine years, when suddenly private farmers tried to join to at least get their hands on a little seed grain, but authorities weeded through the applications to see who was joining for real and who was doing it to stick out the famine. Once conditions had stabilized after 1933, uh, even ex-kulaks were allowed on, although the prohibition against priests and their families would continue. Nobody liked the priests. Life as a Kokolsnik was simple. You could own your house and your barn, you had your private plot, after the state dropped its attempts to meddle with that. You got a share of the Kokoz's output, which was sometimes crops grown that was given directly to you, and sometimes money from the sale of your share of the crops. You were obligated to work collectivized land so as to meet your tax to the state, which was paid in labor and output, and you could sell your own private produce on markets in the Kokoz. You were not able to own your own horse, which left you dependent on that score to the local chairman, Although you could own a cow and some chickens, and depending on where you lived, maybe some other pastoral livestock, if you didn't throw straight dice and either withheld part of your harvest or shirked your responsibilities on the Kokos, then you could expect to lose access to those private markets. You also weren't going to get access to horses or tractors either. That being said, you were far from alone on the Kokos, that was the entire point after all, and your rural comrades were in the same situation you were in, so there was a good degree of cooperation in terms of getting one over on the local chairman. One thing to note is that many peasants around the Union, especially those who live close to industrial areas or resource extraction operations, supplemented their incomes during the off-season when planting and harvesting was not underway by becoming otkod, or otkodniks. For our purposes, this was temporary work undertaken by peasants. They'd leave their farms behind for a spell and work in the mining or timber industries, or go into the cities to do odd jobs. For obvious reasons of control and wanting to make sure those peasants came back, Kolkos officials took a dim view to this kind of work. And if they got into too much trouble, peasants could be expelled from the Kolkos, if at least two-thirds of the community thought that to be prudent, which would crop up if everybody thought that a guy was contributing too little to the overall group. This was a little tricky to do in the case of the Otkodniks, as they could just make their temporary work permanent if push came to shove. Expulsion was kind of a last-ditch thing, and was mostly just a threat at first. Plus, the side gigs the Otkodniks worked in actually proved to be a big economic benefit to the overall nation, so it was a delicate dance of priorities in the eyes of the larger state. Expulsion will become a bigger topic in the next miniseries of the USSR, when it went hand-in-hand -hand with the purges. That so many peasants were happy to wander off and work as a Kodniks kind of highlights the big problem of the collective farms. And that was, material conditions in the Kokos were much worse for the peasants than the system that had preceded it. I've talked in the past few episodes on why that was, and how the entire union, both farm and city, was going to be experiencing planned deprivation during the first five-year plan so as to allow maximum investment into the economy. But peasants didn't think of it that way. They had no experience with the new factories, and they didn't have faith in the state to deliver on material promises set for a later date. All they knew was what was in front of them, and what was in front of them was an absence of consumer goods, drastically reduced earnings, and a new dependence on institutions that didn't seem to prioritize their needs. 
For peasants who had prospered in the NEP, it was a nightmare as forces outside of their control upended everything they had grown to count upon and left them borderline destitute. When peasants turned to religion as an expression of resistance, their messaging took on an apocalyptic tone. Their world was ending. If the conditions found in the Kolkhoz sound toxic and a recipe for disaster, you aren't wrong. They absolutely were. But the Communist Party was at least aware that there was an unsustainable gulf between them and the peasants. A big play to try and get this addressed was to recruit committed communists from the industrial proletariat and send them into the countryside to act basically as team leaders and team builders. These guys would pep up their fellow proletariat and do much of the nitty-gritty work in getting people on program with the Kolkhoz. The shop floors of the factories were combed over for dependable comrades, uh, typically men that had served in the Civil War or, at the very least, had supported the party that long. Many had a decade or more of reliable service in industrial jobs. This group was not drawn heavily from the Komsomol. These would be older people who were mature and had demonstrated workforce leadership capability. They were overwhelmingly men, not necessarily by design, but no special effort was made to recruit women, so they composed less of 8% of the overall group sent to the countryside. As a whole, they would be referred to as the 25,000ers, as that was their ostensible number. In reality, there were 27,519 of them, but 25,000ers sounds better, so we're going with that. That might seem like a small number in the grand scheme of things, and it certainly was, but keep in mind these guys were supposed to be just cadres, that in addition to going into the Kolkhoz and doing work, they would also build up communist support while they were there. And in addition to their political reliability and leadership qualities, they were also driven workers. They really had to be a cut above standard, as they were going to leave behind the indu their industrial lives that they had made for themselves for a tour of two years for the sake of the party. Just a little side note, the families of the 25,000ers were allowed to remain in the cities if they so chose, with the normal benefits befitting industrial workers still left to them. And the pay and resources allotted to these guys were significantly higher than those afforded to the actual peasants. Uh, that all being said, they could expect to take a huge financial hit, earning sometimes a tenth of what they had been previously. These guys weren't in it for the money. They were true believers. And additional requirements were that their connections with the countryside had to be minimal. Volunteers couldn't have close relatives out on the farms, and they themselves could not have come from the farms unless it was from some truly remote past. Sentimentality and sympathy with the peasantry could not be issues for the work ahead of them. Understandably, many industrial unions and managers resented losing some of their best, especially amidst the rapidly expanding production targets during the first five-year plan. It took direct party intervention to overcome these objections, which were raised mostly by the remnants of the right opposition, so getting this project off the ground became another cudgel to be used against them. To get the industrial workers some experience with farm work, many were sent for a few months to the Sovkhoz to build their skills, and some joined the MTSs and operated mechanized equipment. Which, it might seem cheap to volunteer to work on a farm, but then call dibs on the technical jobs, but on account of the lack of training among the peasants, these workers oftentimes passed on their know-how to their peasant comrades, allowing them to get jobs on the MTSs when they otherwise might not have been able to pick up the necessary know-how. They took classes and orientations, which presented the job ahead in almost military terms. They were being mobilized to win a war for grain. They were going to beat the class enemies and secure the revolution. 
Another motivator was the thought that they were going to create food security, not just for the Union as a whole, but also their families back home in the cities. Food paranoia constantly stalked the cities of the USSR on account of dislocations in the countryside. They were going to do something about it. The militarized atmosphere among the work brigades that the 25,000ers formed was received positively, as many of them were veterans of the Red Army and were ready to march again. There was an element of payback to it as well. I mentioned the food insecurity, and, well, the 25,000ers were looking forward to going into the farms and taking down the kulaks that were holding all that grain hostage. The departure of the 25,000ers was marked by arousing speeches and well wishes, you know, bands playing, very encouraging scenes as they boarded their trains. Their arrival in the Kokos, on the other hand, was met with coldness and even hostility. Uh, this wasn't just on the part of the peasants. Local officials weren't too happy either with their presence. Here were zealous units of workers unbeholden to their authority, tasked with expanding output by any means necessary. They arrived in early 1930, right in the thick of that big collectivization push. Like with everything else, there was no plan. <laughs> Many of the 25,000ers were left totally idle at first, with a group in Uzbekistan reporting that they sat around for an entire month not doing anything. In many cases, they were waylaid by local officials, sent to the wrong locations deliberately, and were denied proper housing. The 25,000ers were furious at the local officials, which would be an unrelenting refrain as the workers were horribly unimpressed with the grasping bureaucrats trying to juice the collectivization numbers. In early March 1930, Moscow had to step in directly, with the local bosses having to be told in no uncertain terms that if they didn't knock it off, that it would be their asses. It was not a great start to the project, and what went unaddressed was just who exactly was supposed to be in charge of it, and how the 25,000er work brigades were supposed to function in their assigned areas. There was always a tension with the workers wanting to do collectivization the textbook way, slower and steadier, while officials wanted to do it all in one go so as to look good on their reports. Relations with the peasants were equally divisive. The 25,000ers quickly became paranoid of the peasants, not only due to their suspicion of kulak plots against them, but also because of stories of violence and ambushes against workers who were caught alone and unawares. Still, once they actually got to the Kokos, the 25,000ers quickly took to their work. In addition to doing actual, you know, farm work, they assembled party activists, members of the Komsomol, and sympathetic poor peasants, and started getting everybody on the same page in terms of making their local kokos function properly. Sometimes this was easier said than done, especially in areas that had largely been collectivized on paper. As it turned out, the March 1930 retreat from collectivization benefited the 25,000ers' mission. The sudden dispersal of so many people from the Kokos provided an opening for a lot of house cleaning, and the workers were the point men on that. Officials who had gone overboard or had mismanaged collectivizing their farms were subject to removal, local activists who had deviated from the state line or had proven unreliable were subordinated to the workers. The 25,000ers became a force to be reckoned with on the Kokos, as administrators and local party bosses who went against them were liable to be removed. During the summer of 1930, the rural apparatus of the state, both in the party and the bureaucracy, was systematically purged, with huge numbers losing their privileged positions. While the 25,000ers might not have instigated the majority of these removals, after all, their numbers were by definition limited, it was their outcry that got the ball rolling. 
and once openings in the party and bureaucracies started appearing in the countryside, they were filled by men that had been recruited and instructed by the workers. These would be men trained to implement party policy by the book, and not in as much of a slapdash manner as their predecessors. The imprint of the 25,000ers on the trajectory of collectivization was therefore notable, not so much in their personal farm work, but in how they shaped the management of the Kolkos. Almost as soon as the spring 1930 retreat had played out, the rapid leadership adjustments meant that when the collectivization campaigns were restarted later in 1930, they would be done in a much more even-handed manner with long-term sustainability in mind. Ultimately, the 25,000er campaign was a limited one, set to expire at the end of 1931. The ranks of the original group were not replaced over time, and attrition did reduce their ranks. The reasons were many. Some were deemed unfit for farm life, some got sick or injured, others were recalled because their services were needed elsewhere, some got promotions. Rare were outright desertions, but they were not unheard of. By 1931, the group was down to around 15,000 people, which, all in all, was considered a decent turnover rate given the hectic environment. 11,000 would remain in the countryside by 1933, choosing to settle into peasant life for the long haul. Others returned to the cities and resumed their lives. Some took up the state's offer of furthering their education and the technical institutes, and all were afforded enhanced social prestige thanks to the campaign. While they didn't form a particular clique, being part of the 25,000ers was a big feather in the caps of many, and their memory was saluted for the rest of the existence of the Soviet Union. Their story also concludes this little sidebar episode talking about life on the Kolkos and what it was like switching over to an existence of collectivization. As I've discussed, no matter how the state tried to sugarcoat things, the peasants found it impossible to fully reconcile themselves to the new mode of life. They were on the Kolkos, they were eking out an existence, but it was not one they believed in. They called it a second serfdom, and while they didn't outright revolt, they were prepared to undermine the Kolkos however they could. After all, the 25,000ers, Komsomol, and party cadres couldn't be everywhere, could they? Next week, I'm going to continue the narrative and discuss how passive and occasionally active resistance to the Kolkos undermined output, leading the state to take ever more drastic action to secure the grain it needed, and which all contributed to the Great Famine that nearly brought the USSR to its knees. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.